Man, have mercy on that girl's parents when she gets to be a teenager, right? <laughs> Holy smokes. That's funny, as long as you're not on the receiving end of that. I love in the, in the last one, the brother-in-law. He just is like, I'm going to kill you to the guy. It's like, oh man, that's not good. That is some needless drama. That's why I showed you that, and because it's funny. I'm sure none of you are as blatant as that little girl is about stirring up drama in your lives, right? None of us are guilty of making mountains out of molehills, or are we? Or are we? Have you ever stopped to ask yourself what the common denominator is in all of the issues and conflict and drama that you have in your life? I uh, was talking to a friend of mine this week, and uh, he told me a joke. He said, if someone calls you a donkey, um, probably disregard it. If two people call you a donkey, maybe you ought to do some self uh, reflection, and if three people call you a donkey, it's time to go buy a saddle, right? <laughs> right? Have you ever stopped to think what the common denominator is in all of the, the conflict and drama that's in your life? Last week I made a statement, and I said, I said that conflict and drama are unavoidable because there is sin in this world, in your heart, in my heart, in everyone's heart. So it's unavoidable, in general. In general, I stand by that statement. In general, conflict is unavoidable, but... That doesn't mean that all the conflict and drama that is in our life is necessary. Sometimes you and I make mountains out of molehills. Last week we talked about how we need to live in view of God's mercy as a response to the gospel. What Christ has done for us on the cross. That should change how we live. We should be merciful because God is merciful to us. We should be committed to, committed to peace. How committed to peace? As committed to peace as Jesus was committed to making peace between you and I. How far did he go to make peace between you and I? Well, he, he was crucified, and then he rose from the dead. That's our standard. That's our standard. That is how doggedly committed we need to be to making peace. But just because we're committed to making peace with our enemies and the world doesn't mean that we'll always have it. Sometimes it will evade us. Sometimes it will elude us. And next week's message is going to be all about how to make peace when conflict is completely unavoidable. But today, today I want to focus on what, uh, I want to focus on how we can avoid conflict and how we can de-escalate conflict, how we can learn to live like Jesus in a manner that, that helps strip a lot of the needless conflict out of our lives. So how in the world do we do that? Well, in short, we do what Proverbs 19.11 tells us to do. Proverbs 19.11 says that a person's wisdom yields patience. Patience is a fruit of the Spirit, so it's Christ working in our hearts, producing patience. A person's wisdom yields patience, and it is to one's glory to overlook an offense. It's to one's glory to overlook an offense. Proverbs 19.11, if you're taking notes. I apologize, I don't have slides today because this is a real bear of a message for me to put together. So you're going to need to open your Bibles. We're going to be in Luke 6. Open your Bibles or grab your phone. We have black ones in front of you, and I want it to be in front of you. I want it to be in front of you because we're actually going to work backwards through the text this morning. So I want you to see it. Luke 6 will be in 28 through, through uh, verses 42. Um, but the first thing that Jesus says that I want to look at is found in verses 41 and 42 of our section this morning. And the issue that Jesus challenges here, it's hypocrisy. 
It's living contrary to what we say. We say one thing, we do another thing. So Jesus says if we want to avoid conflict, unnecessary drama, we've got to learn to examine ourselves. We've got to learn to look inward. And Jesus kind of puts it in, in a comical terms, right? We'll read it together, starting in verse 41 of Luke chapter 6. He says, Why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye and pay no attention to the plank or log in your eye? That's a funny visual. You've got a, a log poking out of your eye and you're trying to get a tweezers in, in someone else's eye. He says, Why do you do that? How can you say to your brother, Brother, let me take that speck out of your eye when you fail to, say the, when you fail to see the plank in your own eye? You're a hypocrite. First take the plank, take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to remove the speck. Then you'll see clearly to remove the speck. You see, many of us are incapable of avoiding unnecessary drama, of avoiding conflict in our lives, because we never take our eyes off of other people. Drama kings and drama queens, they forget about James chapter 4. In James chapter 4, uh, James asks this question. He says, what causes conflict and, morals, or conflict and quarrels among you? It's your own passions, your own sinful desires. It's your own heart that causes you to fight amongst, one other, amongst other people. Drama kings and drama queens are focused on everyone else. They never look at themselves. They never examine their own heart. They focus on their boss, their co-workers, their spouse, their circumstances, their neighbors, constantly looking everywhere else. Their Facebook feed, right? Always outward looking. The source of conflict and drama, it's out there, they think. It's not my problem. It's them. It's their problem. It's, it's what they do or, or they didn't do. It's, it's what he or she said or, or what they didn't say. It's their fault. It's their fault. Drama kings and drama queens compare themselves to others. They're constantly looking at other people. And this comparison leads to really cloudy judgment. It leads to cloudy judgment. I don't think I'm re misreading this. If you look at verses 41 and 42, Jesus says, when we focus only on the faults and annoyances, the sins of other people, we're constantly looking at them, our vision starts to get cloudy. We begin to lose perspective. And things that really aren't supposed to be a big deal start to become pretty big deals in our eyes. When we focus on other people and their faults, our judgment gets clouded. It gets clouded. Minor issues that are supposed to be minor issues can get blown way out of proportion. Way out of proportion. And so Jesus says, in order for us to see clearly, that is, in order for you and I to be in a position to evaluate whether a conflict is necessary, we have to focus on ourselves. We have to focus on ourselves. We got to examine ourselves. And the reason for this is twofold. I think the first, the first one is kind of obvious. If we're so busy focused on everyone else around us, then we don't realize how much we're to blame for the issues, for the drama, for the conflict in our lives. The Bible is abundantly clear about this. It's abundantly clear. The problem is not them. Whoever them is or are, whatever the grammatical thing is there, the problem is not them. The problem is not out there. The problem is you and I, it's our hearts, our sinful desires that wage war with inside of us. We're self-protective, right? We will go at great lengths to manipulate facts. And we're, we're politicians at heart. Like, you guys like politicians? Me either. But I am one. And so are you. So are you. We spin stuff. We sling mud. That is, that is our natural state. That is our natural state, right? 
We warp the truth to paint ourselves in the best picture, the best light that we possibly can. And each and every one of us, we got to come to grips with this reality. We have to embrace it. The problem is not out there. It is inside of us. You and me, you and I, we are the biggest problem in our world. We're the biggest problem in our world. So we've got to recognize this first. Because if we can't identify the problem, then we can't proceed with the solution, right? So we got to know what the problem is. And secondly, by examining ourselves and being honest about our own issues before God, we are automatically humbled. We're humbled. Examining ourselves in the light of Jesus instead of in light of everyone else, it will change our attitude. When we compare ourselves to others, we only look at their faults and neglect to look at our issues, we get proud. We get puffed up. We get arrogant. We get combative. We feel justified and, and slapping people around, right? But if we come to the Bible as a mirror instead of a set of binoculars, then God's word can do its work on us. It can. It can change us. It will knock us down a few sizes and give us a proper attitude, a proper heart. Before, we're justified in our rage. We can yell at people, condemn people, but after we examine ourselves in the light of who Jesus is and what he's done for us, we're reminded that we need grace and mercy just as much as the next guy. See, getting the logs out of our own eyes will clear things up for us and put us in a position to avoid conflict altogether or to de-escalate it instead of just throwing gasoline on the fire. I was having breakfast with one of your elders this past week at McDonald's, Terry Berenger, down there in the blue shirt. He told me about a time in his life where he got a new boss at work. And he said this guy was arrogant and mean and overly critical, just not a fun person to work for. And he said it got to a point in the workplace where he thought, if I don't change my job, if I don't leave, if I don't do something different, it's going to come to blows. You ever been there? You ever been in a situation where you feel like if something doesn't change, if I don't get out of here, something bad, like this thing's going to blow up. <clears throat> Terry said if, if he didn't, if the guy didn't get fired or he didn't quit, it, it, I mean, he was rock'em, sock'em robots. It was about to happen, Okay. Until, until he picked up a book by the name of a man named Jerry Bridges. A book called Respectable Sins. He said he believes that God put this book into his hands. And it, it's a book about, about the sins that you and I, people, church rats, church mouse, guys and, guys and gals who grew up in the church, that we can overlook or we can tolerate. Respectable things, right? Where we think, oh, that's not that big of a deal. He said, as he read this book, he began to realize, and God began to kind of give him a gut check. It's a tough book to read, not because of the reading level, but because it's kind of a smack in the face for Christians who've grown up in the church and who've kind of forgotten about the sins that they deal with that they overlook. He said, as I read this, God began to teach me that I'm no better than this man, that I'm in need of mercy, that I've got junk in my life that I need to clean up, that I need to worry up, worry about. And perhaps God is allowing this gentleman to be in my life to help show me that, to make me a better man, to change my heart. He says, as I began to examine myself, God began to change my heart towards this guy. Now I'm sure, and Terry can probably tell you about it later if you ask him, I'm sure there were more days where of difficulty, right? It's not just a light switch, we just flip and everything's rainbows and unicorns. No, no. I'm sure there were still issues, but as Terry began to look inward in the light of Jesus, in the light of his own sin, and in the light of all of that, 
his heart began to change and his attitude began to change where he was able to evaluate what things really need to be addressed with his boss, but he was able to do it in a way that de-escalated the situation. And he said, I was able to overlook a lot of things as well. It just changed things. It changed things. I was able to overlook conflict and outright forgive this guy in a lot of ways. It was helpful. So we got to be able to evaluate ourselves, to, to examine ourselves so that we can be in a position to see whether or not the conflict in our lives is necessary. What offenses can be overlooked? We got to look in our own hearts. And along with that, we got to check our hearts. Examine yourself and check your heart. You say, isn't that the same thing? Kind of, I guess, if you want to argue with me about it. Yeah, it is. That's how important it is. Examine your heart. Consider what kind of behaviors, what kind of responses, what kind of motivations you are tolerating that Jesus doesn't in his word. What things you're overlooking. And then after you've done that work of self-examination and you're thinking about pursuing conflict, we got to check our hearts. We got to check our hearts. Jesus says that we should not be overly critical or condemning of people. If you're going into a situation, guns blazing, right? Pew, pew. If you're going like ready to, you've got the ammo, you've been listening but not really listening, you've just been like loading your gun and you're ready to come out gun slinging at people, Jesus says, hold up. Okay, you, you thought about your own sins, but you got to check your heart, man. You got to check your heart. If you're going into a situation, you got to check your heart. Listen to Jesus' words, verse 37. He says, do not judge and you will not be judged. Do not condemn and you will not be condemned. Forgive and you will be forgiven. Give and it will be given to you. A good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over. Be poured into your lap. For the measure you use, it will be measured to you. And all culture loves verse 37. You've probably heard politicians and news people and Facebook and everybody. Everybody likes to quote verse 37, verse 37, right? Jesus says, don't judge. You judging me? Don't judge me, bro. I know, I know I don't have all my stuff together, so I, I can't judge him, right? We, we love quoting this verse, but Jesus isn't saying that we should turn a blind eye to sin. That is not what he's saying. That's not what he's saying. He's saying that we shouldn't set ourselves up as the executioner. That right is reserved to God alone. See, elsewhere in Scripture, we've got to use Scripture to interpret Scripture. Elsewhere in Scripture, we're told that we should test the spirits, Test what people say against God's word. That we should use discernment. It even says that we're responsible to judge other Christians. In the sense that we're supposed to hold one another accountable. And look at what's righteous and not righteous. And do church discipline and that kind of stuff. So he's not saying don't throw out discipline. Jesus isn't saying to do, do away with discernment. What Jesus is saying is that a critical and condemning spirit has no place in the heart of a Christian. Instead of being quick to condemn, Jesus says we are to be quick to forgive, quick to pardon. We're to be quick to, to give generously, even to our enemies, to give the benefit of the doubt. You see, if we're quick to forgive, quick to give, we can rest assured that we will reap a war, reward. We will be rewarded. Oftentimes, it's in this life. You reap what you sow. Sometimes it's not. Oftentimes it is, but it is certainly guaranteed in the next life. And not only that, but allowing Jesus' radical love to shine through us is transformative. It's transformative. You see, loving those who are good to you, who are kind to you, that's not transformative. That's how the world works. That's what sinful people do. We saw that, or that's what sinful people do. 
They love those who love them. They're good to those who, good, who are good to them. They repay evil with evil and goodness for good. There's no transformative power in that. But when you love your enemies, when you bless those who persecute you and do not curse them, there is transformative power in that. You remember the, the illustration from last week. The young man who embraced his brother's murderer in the name of the gospel. It's powerful. It's powerful. Being quick to forgive and pardon our enemies is a powerful testimony of the gospel. Living with grace and charity towards all. It's transformative. Living like Jesus brings forth rewards. Sometimes in this life. Not always, but sometimes. And certainly in the next. And that's really what verses 28 through 36 are all about. Jesus is commanding his followers to be marked by love for their enemies. To be marked by charity in all of their interactions. Let's read it. Verse 28. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who mistreat you. If someone slaps you on the cheek, turn to them, the other also. If someone takes your coat, do not withhold your shirt from them. Give to everyone who asks you. And if someone takes what belongs to you, do not demand it back. Do to others as you would have them do to you. If you love those who love you, what credit is that to you? Even sinners do that. Or even sinners love those who love them. And if you do good to those who do good to you, what credit is that to you? Even sinners do that. And if you lend to those from whom you expect repayment, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners, expecting to be repaid in full. But love your enemies. Do good to them. Lend to them without expecting to get anything back. Then your reward will be great. And you will be children of the Most High because he is kind to the ungrateful and the wicked. Be merciful, just as your Father is merciful. To be merciful means to overlook an offense. That's the definition of mercy. There was a wrong that's been done, offense that's been committed, but instead of seeking revenge and vindication, instead of trying to get even, we offer to overlook it, to forgive it. The only way this is possible is if you live in the view of God's mercy to you in Jesus. So, after we've examined ourselves, we've allowed Jesus to deal with the logs or log, log or logs. I got logs in my eye. I don't know if you, maybe you just got one. I got logs. If we allow Jesus to deal with the logs in our eye, and in humility, we've checked our heart to see if we've got a critical spirit, condemning spirit. At that point then, in view of God's mercy, we can now see clearly. We can see clearly enough to evaluate what issues indeed call for confrontation and what are things that just simply need to be overlooked? To be sure, there is a time and a place to confront sin, to deal with some drama. But we need to learn to pick our battles wisely. Many times I think we needlessly create drama and conflict that could have just been avoided or, or certainly could have been de-escalated. I'm really sorry to admit it, but there's a lot of drama in my life that could have been avoided or de-escalated if I did a better job at denying myself and allowing Jesus to shine through me towards others, and especially towards my wife and my kids. So I want to get really practical, right? We can talk about let Jesus' love shine through you, but what does that mean exactly? Obviously, we live in view of God's mercy. How do we do that? God is the one who produces the fruit, but I think there's a degree that we can cooperate with the Holy Spirit at work within us, okay? So how do we do that? I want to give you a grid 
of some things to think through. Before you just shoot off at the mouth like I normally do, pause and think through. Consider some of these things. The first one is this. Consider the sin. Consider the sin. When you feel your blood pressure rising, right, your cheeks are starting to get rosy, ask yourself, is what I'm upset about sin in the Bible? Is it described as sin in the Bible? Oftentimes we get into it with with coworkers, with friends, with spouses, over matters of preference and matters of conscience. Matters of preference and matters of conscience. If God ain't mad about it, you shouldn't be either, right? You shouldn't be either. In matters of conscience and preference, we need to lead with grace and love. It's okay to disagree on matters of conscience and matters of preference. We can still love one another. If you want some biblical text to, to research, and you should, Romans 14, 1 Corinthians 10, very helpful here. You should read them. But I just want to give you a couple examples from real life. One would be, imagine you're in a situation where maybe you were an alcoholic. Maybe you've gotten a bad way with alcohol before. And you've decided for you, it is wrong, sinful even, to drink alcohol. For you. You've determined, I'm not going to touch the stuff because I'm convicted over it. I know where it's been. I know what it's done. I'm not doing it. It's not right for me. So you set that fence up around your life. That's fine. No problem with that. The issue is, say you go out to a restaurant and you see one of, your, one of your church folks out there. Maybe he's having a beer with his wife, okay? He's not drunk. He doesn't have like shots, like 40 shot glasses signed up. He's having a drink. That is something that is a matter of conscience. The Bible says don't get drunk. It doesn't say don't drink alcohol. That's fine for you to make that a blanket thing for yourself, it would be wrong for you to go into that situation and say, hey, bro, you're sinning, and, and call judgment and conflict. That is something that can be avoided. Now, if he came to your house and showed up with a case and you asked him not to, that's a, that's a completely different thing. But if you're out in public, that is something, don't take offense at that, right? Don't take offense at that. That's fine for you, but you can't, you can't use matters of conscience and put that on other people. The Bible doesn't call having a drink sin, and we can talk about the wisdom of that and all of that, and, and we can. We can be open with one another, but that would be an issue where there's a matter of conscience. The same thing you could say with, like, vegetarianism or veganism. Like, hey, man, you don't, you don't eat bacon? Great, more for me, right? We don't have to argue about it. It's not a, it's not a sinful matter, okay? So that's a matter of conscience. There, there's no need for conflict there. And I've seen some people in really fundamentalistic circles kind of have a lot of drama and conflict in their life over matters of conscience. It's like, hey, let's, let's love one another. There's freedom in Christ. Respect the weaker brother. Read Romans 14. Go read that. But that's an issue where, where we can maybe agree to, to have some grace with one another. That's, that's one issue there. Another one is in matters of preference. Now, I'm going to get vulnerable with you, okay? I hate backseat drivers. Hate them, Right? My wife sometimes will be sleeping, I'm driving in the highway, and I'm driving along, and all of a sudden she'll wake up and, oh my goodness, right? I'm like, I'm like freaking out. It like unsettles me, and then it makes me rage, like really rage, because the car that's in front of us is like 150 feet in front of us, and she thinks it's 20 feet in front of us, and this has been a source of conflict for us. Maybe some of the guys, I'm told ladies have a different depth perception than men. It's not wrong, it's just different, Okay. <laughs> I'm, gonna get, I'm, I'm not avoiding conflict right now very well, am I? <laughs> that is something in the early years of my marriage I used to get super critical about. 
Like pretty, like we'd have a heated argument about it in the car. It was not God honoring. Certainly, I did not de-escalate the situation. Okay, that's a matter of preference. Now, my wife and I are able, for the most part, I'm learning how to overlook this. I'm learning how to overlook this. We are learning how to communicate with one another. This is a matter of preference. We've talked about this. I've told her why this makes me upset. And she's told me about a car accident that she was in when she was in college where she almost died, okay, when it was raining. And so she's more tense on the highway than maybe some other people. So that, that's been helpful. She's just trying to be helpful. She's not trying to, to cut me down. So instead of getting upset and fighting about it, now I try and make a joke about it or she'll, she'll poke fun at me. And we can laugh about what we used to fight about. We can only do that because we've talked about this. We've talked about this. Sometimes a conversation, not a conflict, a conversation is needed. So consider the sin, whether it's a sin or not. It's a matter of confidence, a matter of preference. And then consider your conversation. Consider your communication. As a couple, as a friend, as siblings, agree with one another that you won't allow yourself to be upset about unverbalized expectations. If you haven't expressed your expectations verbally, then no one is a mind reader. You're not a mind reader. I'm not a mind reader. You're not allowed to be upset about it, especially in matters of preference. So Rachel and I, uh, um, so, so we, we've had this conversation, and, and this is how we've kind of de-escalated the conflict before it starts in regards to her being my little helper in the car, okay? <laughs> Rachel now knows that I expect her not to scream if she's nervous, because we've talked about it. And I found this phrase incredibly helpful in our marriage. When you do this, fill in the blank, it makes me feel like this. When you do this, honey, when you scream in the car, it makes me feel like this. I grew up in a family where operating heavy equipment and trucks and vehicles was considered manly, right? And you were a man if you could do that well. So when you scream in the car and freak out, I feel like I'm not a man. It's stupid. That's completely stupid. Being a man is not tied to whether or not you can operate heavy equipment. I get that. And I've acknowledged that with her. But I had that communication. We had that conversation. Babe, when you do this, I know this is dumb. I know, that, I know you're not trying to cut down my manhood. I get that. But when you do this, this is how I feel. I get that's my own insecurities coming through. I know it's silly. But when you do this, it makes me feel like that. So we've had that, we've done that work, and now we can joke about it, right? She does it, I'm like, wow, man, you're making, or wow, mom, mom, wow, wife, wow, Rachel, you're making me feel, you're making me feel like less of a man. Or she'll scream and do it, and she's like, you're a hunk, babe. Like, <laughs> you can operate cars with the best of them, right? So we make fun of it. But we had to do the hard work of communication. It's preemptive work, communicating our expectations, being vulnerable with one another, so that we can head off conflict at the source. That is not her problem. That is my problem. I'm insecure about being a man. That's silly. I need, I need to go to Jesus to get that. I'm a provider and protective because of what, what Jesus does in me, not how I drive a car. I get that. But because we've had the conversation, we can avoid a lot of unnecessary drama and conflict in our life. So consider your communication. And along with that, Proverbs Proverbs 15.1 says, A gentle answer turns away wrath, but a harsh word stirs up anger. How you say things, men, probably men more than women, 
How you say things matters just as much as what you say sometimes. Think about how you're going to say something. Not just what you're going to say, but how you can say it with gentleness, with respect, as we're told to in 2, Corinthians, or 2 Timothy 2. So along with considering your sin, consider, considering the sin, also consider your communication. Along with that, I think a lot of angst and a lot of conflict can be avoided or at least de-escalated by considering the source. Considering the source. Church, we need to stop being surprised and offended when unbelievers act like unbelievers, right? Your coworker swears like a sailor because he doesn't know Jesus. He's a crotchety old man or a woman because they don't know Jesus. They're talking about their sexcapades over the weekend and their drunken brawls because they don't know Jesus. Of course Hollywood puts out shows and movies that's full of all kinds of crazy bad stuff, sinful stuff, because they don't know Jesus. For the most part, telling people to obey a God that they don't believe in is just not helpful. It's not helpful. 1 Corinthians 5.12 tells us, what do we have to do with judging outsiders? Again, use discernment. It doesn't say we condone behavior that's sinful. No, but it's not our responsibility to condemn people that don't know Christ. They don't know him. They need to know him. Are you conducting yourself in a way that makes Jesus look like a guy they want to know? I don't know about you, but when I read through the Old Testament and I see the types of people that Jesus hangs out with, it makes me wonder how he's conducting himself in such a way that they actually want to hang out with him. He is hanging out with people that we like to whine and complain about an awful lot. Maybe not you. I fall into that camp, right? I can listen to AM radio or NPR, Facebook news feed. If that stuff is stealing your peace and making you a whiny, complaining Christian, turn it off. Get a hobby. Do something else, okay? Don't be surprised when unbelievers act like unbelievers. We're not called to condone their behavior, but love them. Invite them in. You were them. You were them. I was them. And Jesus came and saved us out of it. Jesus is not surprised that the world's going to hell in a handbasket. That's why he came. We shouldn't be surprised either. We shouldn't be surprised either. Consider the source. Don't expect unsaved people to act like saved people. Fourthly, consider the circumstances. <laughs> if you and your wife are about to get in it again about how many stinking pillows you need on your bed, and it's 11 in the, at night, and you both have had a long day, consider the circumstance, right? The, the best thing for you to do is take the pillows off the bed, man. Just set them down. Don't say anything and go to sleep. Call a timeout, right? You need sleep. If there's an issue to be addressed, you'll both know better about what that issue is in the morning. And you'll be equipped after a good night's rest to deal with whatever it is. Your wife loves decorations. Deal with the pillows, bro. <laughs> Preaching to myself, guys. Preaching to myself. <laughs> it's not something we're fighting over. It's a matter of preference, okay? Consider the pattern as well as the circumstance. If you're a boss and your employee shows up once late to a meeting, give them some grace. Probably don't need to address it. If it's a pattern and ongoing behavior, there's probably some communication, some dialogue, maybe some conflict that needs to happen. Consider the pattern. Consider your place. This is a big one. Some 
times, some of us wind up with lots of drama and conflict in our life that we just have no right to be in. It's not about us. We just insert ourselves in the middle of other people's issues because we love it. We feed on it. We got to have it. Consider your place. Consider whether or not this issue that's arisen really concerns you. Right? Don't insert yourself into someone else's drama too quickly or carelessly. There's a time and a place to do that. We'll talk about that next week, Matthew 18. But man, don't just, don't just go looking for it all the time. Generally, people don't care about how much we know until how much they know we care about them. Do you have a relationship with the person to be effective? To be an effective care fronter? The needlessly rude stranger on the street probably doesn't need a lecture from you. Probably doesn't. Or at least it's probably not worth your time to fly off the handle at them to make a scene. It might do more damage than good. It might make you feel better, but it might not achieve what Jesus wants you to achieve in that relationship. Move on. Let it go. Pray for the guy. Blessings, not cursings. A lot of drama and conflict can be avoided if we simply just consider our place before we set out to confront Is it your place? Should you be the one to bring the confrontation? Will it be received well from you? And lastly, and the band can come up, to evaluate whether conflict is necessary, consider the action, not the motivation. Consider the action, not the motives. People who think they're skilled at reading between the lines or discerning hidden motives in relationship. They have a lot of broken relationships, right? You come home from work and, hey, honey, what's for dinner? Or maybe you haven't considered your tone and what's for dinner? She hears that as, what what have you been doing all day? Are you going to screw it up like you did the last time, right? That's not fair. You might even need to work on your tone, but that's that's not fair either. Consider actions, not motivations. Assume motives are innocent until proven otherwise. Give people the benefit of the doubt. 1 Corinthians 4, the beginning, verse, or the beginning of verse 5, 5a. Therefore, do not pronounce judgment before the time. Don't be quick to judge. Give the benefit of the doubt. In short, if it dishonors God, if it breaks a relationship, if it harms you, others, or the offender... And lastly, if it hinders the witness of Jesus, those are issues that probably require some level of conflict. If it doesn't fit into one of those categories, if it doesn't dishonor God, if it doesn't irreparably damage a relationship, if it's not harming someone, if it's not hindering a witness, you could probably overlook it. You could probably let it slide. Be considerate as you approach conflict. Seek to be merciful as your heavenly Father is merciful. I don't know about you, but I need the power of Jesus to get this done. So let's pray and ask him for his help. Father, thank you for the example that you set for us. Lord, Jesus is is just the best. Man, the, the way he loved people, the way he knew how to choose his battles, the way he knew when to use a hard word and and when to use a a compassionate word. He's just the best. Lord, I want to be more like him. I want this church to be full of small Jesuses 
of Jesus's who reflect of, of of people who reflect who Jesus is to our lost and hurting world. Lord, the world is sinful. Don't we know it? But you came for sinners, of which we were the chief sinners. Lord, help us examine our, ourselves. Show us the logs in our eyes, not to crush us, but do the surgery. Get rid of it. We want to be like you. Get rid of our sin. Check our hearts, Lord. We can look at everyone else and look at the world and we can get pretty cranky pretty quick. We can get pretty, pretty critical, pretty condemning. Would you keep our hearts from that, Lord? Make us cheerful people. Winsome in the way we love people. Winsome in the way we confront people when it's even necessary. Lord, help us allow things not to stick on us. Help things blow by that just don't need to drag us down. Give us freedom in you. Remind us we're living for an audience of one. Father, as we do that, as we live in view of your mercy to us, help us be merciful people. Help us be considerate people. For your glory and our joy, we pray. Amen.